make sure everybody kind of all things speed here and I want to just kind of debrief on on everything that you guys have seen, which you guys have seen a lot obviously in these last three weeks now of what we do in there, but you know, the why, necessarily what it is, and it's probably not all familiar with you guys. Maybe some of the coaching cues you guys have heard. Um, so I want to I want to just kind of break those things down. Uh, I guess the best place to start is probably just more of acceleration. Okay, so you talk about, and I guess let's just start with organization and that. So. You guys have noticed that our two days, right? We have we sprint on Tuesdays, we sprint on Fridays. Are our days that we sprint before we do our lower body. So you guys have been able to notice what we do, what what, what four specs we focus on on Tuesdays. Be vertical, horizontal, horizontal. Okay. What kind of jumps do we do? Broad jumps, right? We, do, we, we work we work on the broad jumps or or the, the horizontal box jumps, mm -hmm. right? Okay, what do we do with the prowlers? And what what angle yeah, what angle are we in, right? It's, it's all it's all pushing back, it's all working on what that we talked about starts with a P, one of our main projection. Okay. So we're working on projection and where we're projecting and, and so Tuesdays become mainly our, our horizontal four sector days. Right? And then we work our accelerator sprints, our tens, twenties, which are, are max effort in nature, but more accelerative in, in nature as well. So Tuesdays become our, our more Horizontal days, whereas Friday are our what? Vertical. Oh, vertical. It's more of a vertical day. What kind of jumps do we do? The vertical box jumps. Do the vertical box jumps. Okay, what are we doing through those little hurdles? What are those called? Wickets. They're called wickets, right? And then we're working our top end mechanics as well because we're sprinting for longer distances with the chains, right? That's where the, the, we get our longer distance stuff, our 30s, our 40s, and, and, and above and beyond that as we continue to progress through the program, okay? So one thing you guys have heard us talk about a lot, right? We talk about three main cues here, or three main kind of KPIs that we'll talk about, which is which is projection, and there's there's two more, right? What about all the all the skipping that we do, all that stuff? What is that to work on? Extension. One of the things about this, but all the skipping we're working on. Projection starts with an R. Rate of force development. Projection rhythm. And then what's the big thing I talked about, Val, with guys on their 20s yesterday? When they're 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 coming out in that good acceleration phase, and as they're working to come up, oh, the, they, rise. the rise. Okay. So really three main things that we're looking for to get out of our speed program is is, is isolating those phases and then finding a way to get them obviously together by we can get time and closer to the season, but projection, rhythm, and rise. And I'll tell you guys the best source I've ever seen of all of this put together. Okay, there's you know, when, when we were, when I was coming up, was I'd find a million different sources to kind of put everything together. The best thing I've ever seen communitively of, of all of this information in, in one area, one book, one program, you name it, is, is it's called the Altus Short Sprints Course. Now, we're going out to Phoenix in, in uh, March, and we're doing a week, a week there, but we've all taken the certification. And for you guys, I think it's very, it's $150. So for most certifications, they're like eight, nine, hundred dollars thousand dollars something like this this is the cheapest certification I've taken and I would say it's by far been the most effective one I've taken but they you know one of the, the big thing that all talk about is that those same three things projection really rise and what that is okay so coin just talk to me a minute about projection what is what is projection why does it matter give me a summary of what you understand about projection, projection is the ability to put force in one direction and propel your body in the other uh, projection is important because depending on where you project force, it dictates where your body moves. 
the angle of projection is important. Uh, if you have projection, say, too vertically, and you're trying to accomplish a faster sprint, you're wasting energy in the wrong direction. So when I'm in an acceleration phase, yep. where am I projecting the majority of my force? You want it to be as horizontal as you can. As you can. What does that mean? Uh, in terms of degree, I'd say you would want to focus on something like shin angles at 45. But you say, you say, you say project as horizontal as I can. Is that general statement? Is that each individual athlete? What does that mean? Well, each individual athlete, because some guys can get into more extreme angles Why? than others. Just through biomechanics, how guys' bodies are put together, guys have different lever so angles. not just through biomechanics, that's one of the reasons. What's, oh. another, what's another thing that affects my, my ability to project and my projection angle? That's what he's talking about, biomechanics and anatomy is what you're getting at. Mm. Okay, what else? Strength. Strength, right? Strength is, is, is a huge thing. Okay, if I don't have strength in certain joint angles, I'm not gonna be able to express that. So let me give you an example, right? If I'm if I'm in an angle and I'm I'm whatever, maybe I'm really strong from this position. I can I can squat to this position. But down here I have no mobility, I have no strength. I'm not gonna be able to possess this angle on the field, right? Because I have no strength in it. So would that angle still be the best angle for me to play my sport at? No. Because I'm not effective in that angle, right? Yeah. So that's why you guys see different I'll, I'll coach up different guys that have different projection angles. And then what you guys have seen now. We all talk about the, the typical prototypical best projection angle is what? 45, 45 degrees in acceleration is what we talk about. It's just very unrealistic for a lot of football players to get there. Okay? You even look at some elite athletic sprinters, depending on all those things, biomechanics and size, that's what many people don't understand is you might be coaching your athletes because you've read one book that says 45 degrees is the correct angle. It's not correct for everybody, right? So what you guys have seen a lot, of, a lot of guys will do a great job of coming out in a low projection angle, but what happens from there? They rise up. Okay, so one thing is you see you see vertical shin, so they'll do this and they'll strike the next step and they'll pop up, okay? Or they can't possess the angle and they do what? Oh. They stutter step, right? That's, that's so that it's the example, if I have you stand up and I push you from behind, you're not just gonna fall on your face, what are you gonna do? Well, that's what you see when you see football players run and you see that kind of, that's what that is. That's their center mass getting too strong. So a lot of things, a lot of coaches you can use with that is what? Project that a higher angle, right? Now, is it quote unquote correct? I, I mean, I, I don't know how, how you want to verbalize that, but it's what's going to be most effective for that particular athlete. So it's kind of like what we talk about when we're doing these pro day combine guys right now is, yes, do we want them to project at a, a lower, more horizontal angle? Absolutely. But if that causes them to have an inefficient second and third step, is it worth it? The answer is no. So we find an angle that that particular athlete can utilize. Okay, so projection, whether that be horizontal or vertical, is, is dependent on the athlete, okay? Now, in the, in the acceleration phase, Boyne, is there only horizontal force reduction? No. No, there's also vertical. Why? Uh, as your body, as you start to accelerate, your body will naturally start to come up as you're reaching. Instead of putting force back, there's more of a circular motion to the way that your feet are churning in your gait that uh, allows you to, instead of you producing a speed, you you're maintaining a speed. You have yeah. Okay. If I am, if were to just project horizontally, where is my center of mass going? It's going forward. forward immediately. And that's where I'm gonna get that breaking motion from. It has to be a gradual 
rise, right? So I have to gradually rise into it. So there's going to be some vertical displacement. And that's where what you talked about, what is that optimal, optimal amount of vertical displacement? Is it whatever, is it 75 and this? Is it, is it 45 and that? That depends on anatomy, biomechanics, strength, all those things, right? And that's kind of where we get that optimal zone of how we know how to accelerate, okay? But the one thing that I'd say and I refuse to coach out of the blocks is, is what that I always say that people coaches all the time. Starts with an L. Stay low. Stay low or lean, okay? Because once again, that's all that's gonna promote is guys doing this, or if you do project at a good angle and then you lean on top of it, that's gonna put your center mass too low. And you're gonna start doing all the stuttering steps and all the things that we don't want, okay? So we don't ever coach lean in acceleration. What do we coach? You guys, we've just been talking about this for right, the last time. We, we coach what? Projection. Projection, right? We project, where we coach projection angles. And we don't use this cue here, but one thing all this talks about is a high point position, which I don't, I don't love it. I thought it's a good concept, it just doesn't relate to me very well as far as, as the link, but that's what they're talking about. Is everybody kind of has a different high point position, and that's the angle that you should project out of. And that's where you are most efficient out of it, is in that they call it achieving the high point angle. Um, which here nor there, we're all trying to get to is just what, what your verbiage and what you verbalize it, it being. So projection and acceleration is not just another, I know we talk more about it in acceleration, but as we get into max velocity mechanics, where does that projection change to, Val? It will be, it will become more vertical. It will become more vertical. Now what about horizontal? Is the horizontal gone at that point? No, it just decreased, but it's not decreased. gone. It's decreased, okay. So, and that, that's, a, that's a lot of, of, of like what we see, but that's one thing that, I don't know that I fully understood until I really started studying and, and analyzing biomechanics of sprinting, of really understanding that there still has to be vertical propulsion. And you look at, like I said, Olympic track athletes or just really good sprinters, you see them and you notice, you know, you guys, like I said, you're gonna always, you're gonna oscillate. So if your right shoulder and your left hip, they're gonna oscillate as you sprint. So everything's always gonna do this, but you should see that gradual vertical pop every step the guy takes. You should see that in the ground and when you don't, it means that they're not typically very elastic or reactive in their, their ankle complex, which is why all the ankle hop stuff that we work with don't do that, um, for, for, for a piece of it at least, okay? So projection, we know that it's always it's always horizontal and vertical, but the degrees of it change based off where we want to project, right? The next thing we talk about is what? The skipping is? Rhythm. Rhythm, okay. Coach Heiss, we use a clapping example, right? What is the significance of that example, and what is it? Well, the significance of it is just it's, it's telling you the cadence in which your feet should be hitting the ground. So if you come out of the blocks and, it, and it's fast, I'm just going to go ahead and use the example. If you come out of the blocks and this is what it sounds like, and you're not getting the extension that you need, and you're not going to build into that rhythm that you need. Okay, if you come out of the blocks and you have big, powerful steps, and you get to the top end mechanics, you can go ahead and have those fast feet turning over, but you want to have the elongated, powerful steps to start. So ground contact time, Coach McNally, out of my stance start is at the highest or lowest it's gonna be? Ground contact time will always be higher. If you hit higher speeds, your feet will go shorter. Okay, so as I'm, I want to, I want to apply, you know, I want to, the only thing about applying pressure in the ground is I come out of my two-point stance as I start to accelerate, and those stances are always gonna be longer time in the ground with my foot on the ground. As I get into mass velocity mechanics, what changes? Ground contact time. It's, 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 it's faster, right? Why? Yes. As you're achieving higher speeds, you're looking contact with the ground for less, more of a vertical, uh, you know, 
shallow, more shallow knee joint, right? So you're not going through as much of a range of motion. Different mechanics, right? You guys looked at that last, we were talking about that last week, right? What that upright sprinting mechanic looks like versus an acceleration, right? Acceleration is, is it acceleration? Is it cyclical? Is your leg doing this at all? All the dribbling stuff we do, is it doing that? No, it's, it's here to here, to here, to here, here to here, 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 and then I get up right. So as we get right, that's when that ground contact time should increase, right? Um, so rhythm, rhythm for that, just understanding that and not coming out pitter pattering like Coach Heist gave the example of is is your feet. If you come out, bang, 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 that's not that's not extension. That's not long ground contact time. We want to punch, right? It's like I said, every I think of acceleration like a fist fight and you have one punch to throw. If I if you if I told you you were gonna fight Mike Tyson and you better knock him out in one punch or his ass is gonna beat you up. You better throw the hard one. You throw. You're not gonna throw a little jab at him, right? You're gonna throw a haymaker. That's got to be acceleration. Those three, those first three steps, they gotta be haymaker, haymaker, haymaker. Okay. Um, one of the other big things, Anthony, that we've seen, we've been talking about a lot, right? Is we've been coaching extension a ton. Yeah. It's just making sure that guys aren't losing any force as they extend to the ground, which is great. Okay, but that front knee that is in this is extending. What is this front knee doing? Flexing. It's flexing. Okay, we talked about low heel recovery. What does that mean, Anthony? Um, less contact with the heel on the ground if you strike. Not exactly, Shaq. Uh, I would say like, uh, I was gonna say recovery too, but I feel like it's just more with the increasing the rhythm as well. Just, no, this is good. I want this is this yeah. is good to help me understand. We don't understand because you know, it's basically you're not bringing your front knee up too much so that your heel's closer to the ground. It doesn't take as long. To exactly. So the idea is, you want to be you guys have heard me coach patience a ton. Let me put the monsters in my pocket. Okay. We coach patience a ton here, right? So as a guy extends that that bottom leg, what you see a lot of our guys do because they've been coached this their whole high school careers is, or you know, I'll see this all the time. How many times have you seen it as hashtag speed school? Right? They're working on their stance start, and somebody puts a freaking hurdle in front of their foot to to drive over. You guys seen that before? Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's, it's real on the internet, okay? So low heel recovery, if, if this is my body, and that becomes the, how high my heel is, it takes me, once I extend, it takes me a whole, and, and look at the angle of my shin here, right? Versus if I'm, look at the angle of that shin. So high heel recovery, Low heel recovery, right? So, low heel recovery, high heel recovery. Does that visually help understand that? Yes. This is the shin. This is the foot. So there's a limit in there's a limit in the knee flexion and the hip flexion to achieve that, correct? I mean, you're yeah. gonna so you want both of them to be at a greater angle. Yeah, and I, and and like I said, I, I really think most of it is just drill. It's just it's just repetitions of what they've done. So like to me, coach to do. yeah, to me, the first thing I would go to would be a coach to hip flexion and decrease that hip flexion. But as I look at that, what you're drawing here, you're gonna see a much increased knee angle as well, right? And this is this is always indicative of your second step because not only does this take longer to get back down to the ground, but once again, you gotta remember where is that shin pointing right now, and it's gonna pop you straight up. Versus look where this shin is pointing. So this way I can gradually work to where my next shin, right? I gradually start to rise. And then the next one, and so you can start to gradually build that, that, that rise up, okay?
So that's a good segue from, from rhythm to now rise. Expri explain to me the importance of, of, of what rise is now and, and why we need to do it. Um, rise would basically help you keep your center of mass within a comfortable range so that you don't fall over as you're increasing your speed. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a really, really good definition of it, okay? And it's just what I said. So it's, it's like you're using, think of the example of me pushing you from behind. If I push you from behind, do this to go again, right? You have to bring your hips back to normal and then you'd have to push. Well, that's what some guys do every step they sprint. When they're center mass and they don't have, they don't have good projection, every step they're contacting here, they have to pull their hips through and then they can push again for the next. Instead of just landing under my hips or in acceleration, where should my foot contact be in the ground? Should be behind, right? Slightly behind. <coughs> and as we rise up, it gets underneath myself more and more. But without rise, we we would just we would have we would have that constant breaking motion. So we should gradually rise. And it's it's not it's it's the biggest thing you see here is, is what from high school coaching advice is do the first ten yards like this, and then at twelve you should do what? Sit so straight up, right? And this is why we do all the dribble bleeding and work on all that stuff of gradual rise. Of that's not the case because one we don't want to run this low right every step should gradually rise up so whatever this angle was for you Zal, i don't know what it is okay let me guess based off your strength levels i'm going to say you're probably like a 65 degree guy maybe maybe let's say a 60 to 65 degree guy what's probably optimal for you that next step should be slightly 67 you know, whatever gradually rise 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 and now i'm vertical but that should happen over a span of time okay um, I think it's probably important to talk about the difference in our athletes that we're coaching, and we this is a debate, this is a, the conversation we can have, versus track athletes, okay? The average Oli Olympic sprinter, does anybody know when they hit max velocity, like their top end speed? About 60 to 70 meters for each Ooh. single. about 60 to 70 meters okay it's a long freaking ways to be accelerating it's I can't even fathom it about me thinking about building speed that long right at the NFL combine last year every single athlete hit max velocity by 15 yards 15 yards versus 70 meters okay so you, you know you, you, you ask yourself why obviously a lot of it is mechanics right the way our sport is the way most of our guys are pelvic tilt wise it's, it's, I think a lot of it is just general mechanics and modalities of what our sport is, okay? But let's go back and talk about this, Heiss, is what is our definition of speed? How do I define speed? How do you define speed? Related to what? Not related to everything, but related to your specific sport. So speed is different for different sports. Speed is speed. Speed is relative based off to, to what what sport we're comparing to. So speed for volleyball, to me, is a different definition than speed for football. It's different than a definition for speed for track, right? So there are a lot of there are a lot of commonalities, and it's a great thing to study. And you have to understand these concepts, but you can't take everything literal for what I just said, right? That is a wild, wildly large difference. We hit max velocity at 15 yards. They hit it at seven at 17. It's just, it's, 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 a, it's a big, big difference there, okay? Um, so kind of going through those general things, what questions do you guys have about any and all of this? Well, in regard to the track athlete hitting top speed at 70 meters, I'm assuming they're 
that's in a 100 meter sprint. Yeah. So an NFL athlete is hitting 15 yards in a 40-yard sprint. So it, does it have to do with just the relativeness a lot of, of distance? It, a lot of it is, is, is size. The size of the athlete has a, has a really big the, – the bigger athlete is, the, the faster they're going to hit. So uh, like a, an offensive lineman, defensive lineman, they're going to hit they, – they all hit it by like eight. Yep. A bigger a bigger person is going to hit it at a, at a sooner a sooner time. Um, but I understand what you're saying. You're saying relatively, you know, 40 compared to 15. Is that like 70 compared to 100? Yeah. But – a lot of like I said it's, just, it's it's complete different mechanics too, and a lot of those a lot of those guys you see in the NFL Combine is they'll get to 15 and then you'll see them just run out, and they, it's not it's not like they ever shift up into those unless you're Christian McCaffrey. Very few of them shift up into that 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 that, that position where my heel should be tucked under my butt. I'm at a 90 degree angle here and I'm top at speed. Most of them are where back, back heel, heel kicking, heel kicking, right? So they're they're really backside. That's what you see a lot in football. Um, for a lot, a lot of different reasons. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's something that we just debated and talked about for a long time of, of necessarily why. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it's mechanics. I think a lot of it is our sport is played like this with our hips back at the start, and you know, a lot of it is just accelerated base, change of direction more than it is. Yeah, I mean, the fact that just the nature of the sport. I mean, we talk about all the time we're never gonna hit max velocity because we're not running forty yards in a straight line, but you have to accelerate so often in the sport that. Have to do accelerating faster, you know, or else you're not going to survive. And that's the thing too is the, the if if uh, the, there's one thing we, you know we do know that there's the, the fastest way to get you know if I said hey the fastest way to get a ten, a ten yard sprint it would be coming out lower, but that would not be the fastest way to get the forty if that makes sense. So to hold a lower angle if I knew I was only going ten that would be faster, but if I needed to do forty it wouldn't be faster. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that, that's one thing, too, is I, our guys have adjusted in there. And remember, all athletes, like, they're just giant compensators. They compensate for problems. And a lot of them do it naturally. Some of them don't do it naturally. And we have to coach them through it. But that's something that a lot of our guys have done, too, is they've compensated for understanding, hey, I'm only going five yards, so I'm going to do it at this angle. I'm not running for And then they've done that for the last 12 years of their lives. So, you know, I think there's your answer right there. Uh, I was going to also say, would it also be because of their ability to generate force out of fast velocity as well. Yeah, I mean that's a that's just a that's an interesting argument in general, which is kind of hard to, to, to understand. It is as you you know one thing that we will, we'll talk about our program you have to learn is is we'll eventually get to where those tier one guys are deficiency based. Okay, so we'll we'll run a reactive strength index on them, which means we're testing how reactive they are. So do they have muscular strength deficit, as in they're not strong enough to, 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 to kind of even out the ratio or are they not elastic enough? Can they not do that, that, that stretch reflex? Is that, or is there, are their joints not reactive enough? It does they have enough strength, they don't have enough reactivity and what is that balance? So as we, as we get to that, we kind of try to figure out what does this athlete need? Does he need more strength work? Does he need more re- reactive work, okay? Long story to go back is to think about, like I think about track sprinters, like Olympic, Olympic athletes, the fastest people in the world. They're not that strong. But they're obviously what? They're obviously strong enough. They're, 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 they're strong enough, right? So I think that's, that's the thing is, that's interesting, is finding what that is of, of, we obviously have different demands. We have to have strong athletes. But at what point are we sacrificing what we do in the weight room to what they really need? Like, this is something that I've talked to you about for years, is, is what is strong enough? Now, I don't, I don't know the answer yet. And this is something I've talked about on, on, the show before many times is is 
what, like, what is that? And will we ever quantify that? Will there ever be a time where I'm like, yeah, you know, 365 is that is just, that's enough. That's that you don't need to bench anymore. If you can single leg squat 50 pounds, that's that's enough strength for any amount of, of force you have to produce on the field. Yeah. Um, is a 405 squat, is that enough? Just, Johnny Barker, when he was in the, it was the Giants in the NFL for a really long time, they just two times your body weight, you don't squat. Yeah, I mean, that's and that's, that's to me, like after, after five, you know, after 500 for an offensive lineman, what, what, what is that really improving? You know, you, like what, what is that really doing where if maybe if you got him at 500, you say, okay, that's good. Now let's just start doing single leg stuff and let's get you really, let's get you moving really well, mobile, let's get you more elastic, let's, you know, what, whatever it may be. But yeah, it's interesting. That's a, it's just an interesting thing in general, Shaq, of, of it's, uh, to me, that's always, that's always been like this 170 pound guy who's obviously not very strong, could probably only squat 200, 225 pounds. Um, and then the other end of it, you have Ben Johnson, who was squatting, what, six, 585, six or something like that, they recorded in that. And so it's, it's different in, in what does the athlete need, too, you know? Dude, I know for like on our end track, uh, we'll spend less time in the weight room and more time like just doing field work and stuff like that. Where opposed to like football, you'll spend half and half with more focused on uh, building strength and then converting that strength into like speed. Yeah. I think one thing you got to consider too is that I don't know where I think I got it from one of the office guys, but it's like force production versus force expression aren't necessarily the same thing. So it's like what we were talking about last night. Yeah. So you could have a really strong squatter, and it takes them, let's say, 200 milliseconds to produce all that force. Well, when your foot's in contact with the ground for 0.08 seconds, like what good is that 600 pound squat going to do for you yeah. if you're not applying that force at the right angle? If you're not reactive and elastic with your feet, right? So yeah. um, you know, expression doesn't. It, it, it might be a little different than just production. When we, when we think of traditionally think of force production, like let's lift to get really strong, like that might not necessarily lead to us being able to express that force in the way that we need to. Yeah, and I mean it's 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 where I've gone in my career is certainly heavy weight room, heavy weight room on field. You know, when when I started, it was it was we did everything we could in the weight room. On field, we did way too way too much and and way too little at the same time. As in we did things that were way too low in actual velocities, way too low in recovery time, not enough recovery time, and way too much of it. Uh, and, and, and as I've shifted, I mean, if you guys have looked at this, you know, on yesterday we did, so yesterday's our highest volume day in here, right, of our lower body week. This is our peak week. This is the most we did. And we did, we did 14 total sets of lower body, right? We did four sets of single leg squats, four sets of single leg RDLs, Three sets of boot, of, uh, of hip lifts and three sets of partner rowing. That's like that, that's way less than most. You guys, you guys, you have most people are freaking just slaughtering it in the, in the weight room and doing double or triple that amount of, of volume. But we talk about microdosing and optimal loads for guys, and then we're out there and we're, we're obviously we're, we're sprinting. We're sprinting at very high velocities. We're very we're very specific about yardages and what we're trying to accomplish in percentage of max velocities. We auto regulate our sprinting, and so. What we've, at least in my time as a head strength coach, has certainly shifted to, I think the importance of the on-field stuff is significantly greater. And obviously positional, there's those arguments as well. We do a little more stuff in here with the big guys and we do skills, but what we do out there to me is our, is our bread and butter from a standpoint of, I believe if you increase sprint speed and you sprint, you'll get stronger. I think from the amount of neuromuscular demands and, 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 the, and the, just the, what we call it, you know, like the, the neurological ingrainment of that, of what that's gonna bring into a weight room, 
I think that's the, that's what helps cross the bridge is, is the sprinting stuff you do. And there's things in here that, that I really like and I see uh, that when you do our box band speed stuff, I see so many so many results in every direction. Like that's probably my favorite thing we do in here when we get to that cycle and we start hitting box band speed spots and, and, and the way that kind of crosses over what we do on the field. But from a standpoint of injury reduction, from a standpoint of, of, of like I said, crossing those bridges, I think sprinting and what you do on the field is 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 what we'll learn is is honestly more important than, than what we're doing in, in, in here to me. Like you know, we talked about this the other day. If you said, hey, you have one, you can do one hamstring movement, only thing you have to prevent hamstring injuries. You get one. And you say that's all you're allowed to do all year. What which one do you think I would take though? You've seen it through single RDLs, you've seen it through eccentrics, isometrics. Okay, what do you think I would do? Think that stuff just in the weight room or weight room and the field? Just one hamstring movement. I think you would sprint. I would sprint. I would sprint. That would be the one thing. If you, if you gave me one option of, hey, this is what you need to do to help prevent hamstring injury, you get one. This is the only posterior chain movement you can do. I would sprint. I would program sprinting. That, that's what I would do. So I also I consider that. I consider sprinting hamstring volume for us. Okay, but. As we've as we've built up and as we continue to, 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 to do this, I think what we continue to find with our with our GPS and what we see is is that's essential. I mean, it's it's it's, it's night and day. When you see a guy spike in volume and it's something he's not done before, and it doesn't matter how much stuff he's done in the weight room. It's how much sprinting has he done, and that's just the truth. And to me, a guy you can take a you know Giovanni Ruiz, okay, one of our athletes from from whatever he he, he blew up on ESPN for being able to do a Nordic hamstring. And he could do like whatever, six of them. Incredibly strong hamstrings. Guess what happened to him the second day of camp? Pulled a hamstring. He pulled his hamstring. Why did he pull his hamstring? Oh, because he didn't. He didn't sprint. Either. He didn't sprint. He didn't sprint at those volumes as he currently had been doing. It was a big spike from what he had done, what he was what he was exposed to, and then all of a sudden went to camp and spiked in what happened to his hamstring. It's it's not rocket science. But you take guys and we see guys who don't have muscular injuries. It's guys that don't have those spikes. So we need to prepare them for that volume, right? If James Patterson has ran 10-yard sprints over and over and over again, but then he goes into spring ball week one and it's his first time being exposed to a 30-yard sprint, what's likely going to happen? Either we're going to create a lot of soreness or we're going to get injured. And so exposing these guys to those volumes, I think, is, is, is massively essential. Um, and then being, 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 being used to that and, and we know that we you know kind of Mike Gilson said this to me like years ago it's like there's no such thing as a guy overtraining. there's only such thing as a guy being underprepared and I think that's the best thing about the GPS that we have is now we know what that is like we we can quantify and say say this is what we need to be ready for at the University of Buffalo we know that for our guys to not overtrain, they need to be prepared for this so when we sat down and wrote this program, what do you think we looked at? The first week of spring ball of last year. What were the volumes we were exposed to? So what do you guys think the last week of training before spring ball is going to get us into? The same volume. Those volumes. So that the first day of spring ball isn't like a, oh my gosh, I've only been done doing five-yard sprints, and now I'm running 40s over and over and over again. So our volume will match that. So it's not about it's not about – 
being overtrained in spring ball, it's, if, if we don't get there, it's either because one, I'm not doing a good job with the coaches of explaining them, hey, we need to, this is this this is not what we've done in the past, and we're not ready for it, or two, we didn't do a good job preparing for it. So we really don't have those excuses at the moment. But I think a lot of that is done via sprinkling, and that that's everything, right? The, you can talk about change of direction. You can talk about all those things. You don't want the first time them, that these guys experience that to be on the field in live live football. And I think those, those are the, the, the best things we can do for that. Um, other questions, guys? So the week before you go into, say, spring ball, you're, you don't want to go in – you want to increase the volume to match – what you're going to experience in spring ball, but you also want to give the guys enough time to recover before spring ball. Right. So that, this is our peak week. This is going to be our highest volume week. So you know we we know that our like the highest player load we'll have next the first week of spring ball for us is about 500 ish. Just throw a number up. Okay. okay. We need to hit that on. We need to hit that tomorrow, which we will. With the team tech and with conditioning, that's planned to hit that tomorrow. So they will have that exposure to that. And then what are they going to have to do the next day? They're going to have to go back out and sprint with us again on Friday. So having that demand of, of spring ball is much easier to manage because there's there's time to dissipate fatigue. We have those days in between, mm -hmm. um, which help us helps out a ton. But that's what um, the understanding is the coaches are going to also slowly build them up. So the coaches are going to take it from there. It's not just, oh, the first day is going to be 500, then it's going to be 850. They understand, and we've had that conversation, that the first day is going to be 500. The second day is going to be 550. The third day is going to be 650. And, and there's there's days of rest in between that. So that is essentially important. Whereas I've been in a situation before where it was the volume is going to be 900 every single day, and you better find a way to figure it out. Um, those are the ones that are really tough to, to figure out. The, this this scenario is very, very easy, and it's easy to talk through, and it's easy because it's, it's more, you know, the, relationship I have with coaches, we, we have those discussions often. Um, and so that makes all of this very, very easy. But most people or most situations don't have that. It's day one is a bloodbath and that's just what it's going to be. And it's going to be a huge spike and there's not much, but that's why I think one thing that Connor talks about that he you know, really took away from Gavit is you have to know what the end, you, you have to know the end in the beginning. Like you have to know that if this is where we're starting, you got to know where, what that end goal is. So, you know, like, by the end of summer, we know what our peak practice is. So we will take an example of what, let's say, let's say our peak practice is here. Well, the idea is that we are smart and our line getting there is here. It's not there, right? This is how injuries happen. Yep, the spike. It doesn't necessarily matter where this is. If you're more of a progressive coach, you're probably closer to here. If you're working for more of an old school coach, you're probably here, and you know what? That's that just means that we have to be smart enough to change our job, or ch you know, change what we do. So obviously, this I would have to change the trajectory. Are you going to have some issues along the way when you don't have it? Just depends. How much time is this? Is four this, weeks. Is this, is this four weeks? <laughs> you're going to have some casualties, right? If it's eight weeks, you might be okay. If it's twelve weeks, probably pretty good. If it's 16 weeks to prepare for that, if it's an entire year, that's when we know what we're doing. That's when we can have a very successful program. So this is imperative to understand as you're preparing your athletes is I think too many people start with this in mind and not really knowing where this is. 
that's why we're always going to define this. I'm always going to have a conversation with the coaches so that we're on the same page about what this is, and then we're always going to work our way to it. So that's, that is an essential piece to make sure that we don't have any of this, because when you're not on the same page with your coaches and this happens, that's when you start losing guys all the time. Okay. So that's, you'll st- sorry. To no, so you'll still have peak weeks during spring ball. So we're gonna deload next week. We will be because of the the, the way this will work, and we can pull up that. Um, we'll we'll look at this chart later. We have so we have all of our our weeks progressively how they work throughout the season. We'll do two deload weeks in a row here. So we will deload them next week after this peak week. And then because volume in the field house with practice is going to spike, and it's going to be new anxiety levels, it's going to be new things for everybody, mm-hmm. we'll stay low in here again. Okay. So we'll go low to recover, and then we'll go low in here because they're going to be high in there right? yeah. to accommodate. Yeah. And then we'll get into what will become our gradual buildup. Okay? By week four, you think they're pretty adapted to what we're doing on the field house, which they should be, and that will become our peak week then. Then we'll deload week one out of spring ball. Gotcha. You get done with spring ball, you might be a little bit beat up. Okay, we'll, we'll peak them, we'll work into the scrimmage, and then deload for a week, ramp them up for three, and then get back into our normal cycle. Okay. Yeah. Um, so since production angle is determined by both the biomechanics of person and your strength level, if the same person increases their strength, would they be able to like use a lower projection angle in the future or would they both be able are you saying like would they both be able to express it the same way or like would their projection angle be able to decrease if the same person increases their strength or would their anatomy still yeah so it just, it's, it's 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 yes but it's not it's not necessarily it'd be it'd be all situational because there's a lot of things that have to go into that it's what coach now i said it's it's there's a difference between force expression and force production just because i can now produce <clears throat> 12,000 pounds of force in the ground, but I can't do it efficiently or effectively. I can't, I can't express it. That doesn't, that doesn't work. Right. So not only do they have to be able to, you know, they, they might get that new force production, but they have to be able to project it as well. So a lot of things that go into that. Right. So even something as small as ankle mobility, right. If I can't, if I don't have enough ankle mobility to get myself into a good shin angle position, it doesn't matter how much strength I have. I'm not going to ever be able to get into that, that movement. So I can get my squat up 300 pounds. But if I don't have the mobility or the elasticity or the rigidity to express it, it's it's all for nothing. And that's why everything is a balance. It's why as you go through program, you know, we work on more of a vertical axis of if you look at our program, something is always emphasized, right? This phase is called what? It's 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 neural ingraining, right? So and and it's an it's a an adaptation phase too in the fact that we're adding volume to it. Yeah. But so it's neural ingraining. We're trying to ingrain motor patterns into our guys right now and get guys moving well. That's, that's the main emphasis, but you see there's still max strength development, right? We're still working a ton of time and attention. There's still power production. We're doing a shit ton of sprints. We're working all those things, right? So we're still working power output. We're still doing tempo, so we're still working aerobic capacity. We're still working those things. You get into those later circuits, right? What happens to the volume? It goes way up, so we're still working hypertrophic qualities. So all those things that go into a program, they're always present but they're always, there's always something emphasized. The further away from football we are, it'll be more max strength. And the closer we get, like, you know, in our, in our last phase, our last block of summer training, we won't max effort, max effort back squat. It'll be a purely power output, box band, dynamic effort squat. 
Um, and then those zones will depend on what your position is, whether you're a linebacker, offensive lineman, your skill will depend on how fast the tempo you can read. But so it kind of, it's, it's always kind of swinging one way or the other, right? And we'll, we'll work more strength out of season, away from season as we get closer, that will start to shift down and power output will start to shift up, right? Aerobic capacity, elastic power, elastic power, those kind of things will start to really work into the program as we get closer to, to season training. So it's it's really, to me, it's, um, everybody's gonna do it differently. You guys might do it differently than I do, you know, when you guys are head guys someday. Um, I need to see it all, I need to see the entire picture painted together. And then I'll go through and I'll cut parts out and I'll put other things in. I can't do where, where a lot, I know good strength coaches that do this. They'll program one week at a time. I can't do that because I need to, I need to know this. I need to know where in my head I see this working. I need to know where we need to finish. That's just how my brain works. I, I couldn't, I, I would have so much anxiety and stress if I just did this, chunk this out one week at a time and just, oh, that's it, oh, that's where, oh, there we're gonna go, oh. Like I just, I, I couldn't operate like that. So to me, I would say, in, I don't know, what percentage of our program do you guys think I change on a, whatever, on an annual basis? You said that there's 100% piece of the pie. What percent of that pie do you say that we adapt things and change? I don't know. I don't know if there's a ton of change. I think that you program liberally and then you coach conservatively. So we, we pull things out of it. It allows you to kind of have the menu of what you want to do and you can pull some things out of it. I wouldn't say it's more than 15%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, but I would say, I would say, I would say 95% of our training sessions aren't what they say on paper. 90%. I mean, think Correct. about, think okay, about, I see what you're think, yes. think about yes. like, think about like our, we had hip lifting in the program for four weeks. How many weeks have we done it? Two. But that's what I was saying. You program right. liberally right. and then you can go ahead and make those decisions on the fly because you already have it planned out. And that's how I, that's just how my brain works. I, I I program. I would say ideally, I program and said, if these athletes do everything they're supposed to do, they take care of their bodies, they show up, they're mentally tough. I don't have to do any like hard drilling. I don't have to put them through a hundred up downs. This is I, I program from an ideal standpoint. If this is the idea. If I was training an NFL athlete who had all the money of recovery, and this is how I would train them. And then from there, I just I, I cut things out of. Hey, I know the guys. Whatever they had, a, they had a, a, a tough weekend. Something happened, and so Monday they're not going to be ready to rock and roll, or, or you know whatever it may be. But yeah, the, I, I just I like to yeah, I like to have my full menu in front of me, right. and I like to see how that all works together. And then we 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 change and, and we adapt constantly based off of what they see. But even like I thought, you guys heard me say to these two guys is I'm organic and fluid inside of a training session. There might be something you know, especially when we're sprinting. There might be something that I see. That I'm like, man, we're just really not rigid and, and reactive today, so we're gonna spend more time hopping and working rhythm. There might be a day that we're freaking, I'm just like, dang, we're cooking, and then we're, so we're gonna sprint. Like we're gonna, we're gonna take when, when, when they're ready to eat, and I can tell their bodies are ready to eat. I'm gonna feed them, and that's that's kind of what it is. When they're not, I'm not, and I'm, you know, it's different coaches have have different ways, but you know, I think I think you need to be really smart with how you how gritty you are with players and, and those kind of things. I think team building and team culture is absolutely essential. You cannot win without it. Um, but I think you can also do it intelligently. You know, I think the, at the end of the day, like the fourth quarter program, that's where we get non-scientific and, you know, but I think, I think that's, that's essential. But the most important thing about that, guys, is that they think it's hard. It doesn't actually need to tax their bodies a ton. You don't need to kill the kids. The most important thing is that they leave there going, Man, that was tough. We did that together. We came together as a unit, and, and we, when you get that, you've now killed two birds with one stone. You haven't crushed them, and they're leaving there thinking that, well, 
killed three because you want to call it non-scientific, but really we took a look at it and it's six hard reps of changing direction, which is fantastic. And it's and about that. six seconds on, 29 seconds off. Yep, and so I don't know how, yeah. Well, I'm more referring to the way that we, right. I know I, I, I've, been, I've been coached to do it in the past. And now, now that, you know, like, I didn't always have control over this program in the past. When I was at Akron, it was, it was a head coach thing and it was, you know, it was different. And now I have all reign over what we do in there. And so, yeah, if you, if you took a stopwatch out, most of our drills are six seconds on, 29 seconds off. Then there's about 90 seconds break between sometimes it pretty much matches our tempos. Our tempo runs to, a, to an extent. So it's definitely gotten better, that's for sure. Uh, so quick question. So can you program your tempo run? Like, it, would you change it up? Like, Jaren Schwartz, like the actual season? Yeah, so it, it's, okay. and, and we, we will go through, I'll, I'll do a presentation with our conditioning too. Um, it progresses all the way through to, right now it's more of, it, it's, it's really an aerobic endeavor. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's really, it, it's, it's, a, it's aerobic and we're trying to really work aerobic capacity. Um, now it's intelligent about how we do it, but as we get closer to the season, it becomes much more about a lack of capacity. Okay. So it shifts to higher velocities, right? A little bit longer recoveries, and we're really focusing on, on our a lack of ability. Okay. Lack of power. A lot of big boys too. Yeah, so um, more or less, you know, it'll progress. So everything's straight line right now, right? Mm -hmm. Then it will go into swiveling. Then it will go into one change of direction. And then we'll go into multiple changes of direction. Then it will go into position specific. So that's when we're now we're, we're working four 10 play drives in the summer where the linebackers are sprinting 10 yards, shuffling to the right, hopping over bags, and then you know, a six second drill. <coughs> trying to emphasize as much of that a lack of window as we can, right? So we'll, we'll, you know, we'll go six seconds on, 20 seconds off for 10 straight times, and then they'll take a five minute rest. And then we'll hit it again, and take five, and then we'll do it again. So it's, it, yeah, it progresses from least specific to most specific, which most of our program does. Kind of everything is much more generalized now, and as these guys get further and further in the program, we get more and more specific. When you say a lactic, that's just the production of lactic acid. <coughs> no, okay. lactic is production. So anything, more or less, to me, anything that's going to be high intensity for like so. So that position specific is, is a it's a lactic accumulation phase for us because that like that's about all you're going to have in football. You're, you you might accumulate some lactic acid, but you're not really ever going to be in a you know lactic phase of where you you go to a 14 play drive you're going to be accumulating some lactic acid mm -hmm. just based off of not having enough recovery to, to, to eliminate all that lactic acid. But for us, mostly a lactic qualities, we're talking about operating in that zero to six second window, not extending past it and being able to recover fully from it. Oh, I just wanted to simply go over the definition of a lactic. Yeah, so I guess, I mean, it's and it's not going to accumulate lactic acid. So we're, we're, talk, we're, we're talking about zero to six minute window. And what I'll do is... Six second window. Sorry. Um, what I'll do is I'll I'll do a, I'll, I'll go through our conditioning program with you guys so you guys can kind of see and understand how I break up. Really, because you guys, you know, there's a lot of a lot of synonyms in this in this industry, which is it's highly frustrating. So I look at things as either really aerobic or elactic. Um, I call I call it aerobic intelligence of what we do because I, I think there's such thing as conditioning as aerobic intelligence. And then there's aerobic, aerobic debauchery, where you just take guys out and you just run stadium stairs for 10 hours. That's being aerobically non-intelligent. Tempos is more, it's, 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 a, it's a higher velocity. It's, it's more specific to our sport, right? And so it's, it's, it's a 
you're, you're, you're going to have higher speeds that are more relatable. We're going to, we're going to develop some of the qualities that we use in our sports. So training with tempos and kind of working with the progression, that's how you develop more what I call aerobic intelligence. But any form of tempo is an aerobic endeavor. That's what you always have to remember. We can just make it more a lack of nature based on how we do it. And so I'll go through that because that's, that's a, that's a power and 15 minute conversation by itself. So I'll go through that um, in more detail, but that's good to know to, to explain that as well. So would you say it's like training to a point where you're at a high intensity, but you're not really accumulating a lot of lack of capacity? Right. So it's, a, and, but not, and not like I said, that, that'll happen sometimes in football, just very rarely, yeah. right? Most, most of it is six seconds on, 20, 29 seconds off or about six to 10 times in a row and they go sit down for, for 15 minutes, 10 minutes, right? And then they back them and they're doing, they're doing it again. So trying to train that way, if there's not a lot of, there's very few 15 second full out sprints where you're accumulating a ton of lactic acid and then you have a seven second break and then you have another 12 second. So there's, there's, there's little lactic acid accumulation. Now, does it happen? Yes, absolutely. Could someone post something and, and, and give me the one example of when it happened? Yeah, yes, you could certainly find that. Okay. But very, very few times in the game of football are there extended plays past six seconds. Um, are there, are there, if we if we were one of those spread offenses that rattled off plays every 13 seconds, would we have to condition differently? Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But guess what we do here? Our average play is six seconds and our average rest is about 29 to 30. So we fit about 104 offensive plays. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it just, you know, once again, you have to know your program too. If I, like I said, if I went and took the job at Florida tomorrow, would I run a different program? Yeah, that would be that would be tailored to those athletes, to the way to the way they play, the way those coaches coach, and what the demands are. You have to understand the demands to be able to write the program. Yeah, there's a much different demand on a conditioning when I was in the Big Twelve for the last three years because of the way they play football in the Big Twelve, right? They, what he's talking about, they snap the ball every 13 seconds, they're throwing it down the field, and yeah, you can't. And so in that case, would there be more or less lactic acid accumulation? Um, more. more, right? Because you're you're sprinting for six seconds, but then you only have 13 seconds to let your body to try to yeah. eliminate. One thing that you got to realize about lactic acid is you guys are all producing it right this second. Yeah. Your body's never not producing lactic acid. It's just the rate at which we're producing it is significantly lower than the rate at which we're able to dissipate it right now. As we start sprinting and in increasing intensity, the rate at which lactic acid is produced is higher, and the rate at which we're able to get rid of it, obviously we can't get rid of the same. And then there's that lactic acid threshold, right, where we go past that, where it's I am no longer able to get rid of this lactic acid at the rate that I can produce it. And that was like the big thing about Lance Armstrong. Yeah, is they measured Lance Armstrong, and he was more or less able to, he was more or less able to dissipate lactic acid at the exact same rate that he was generating it. So for me and you, Jack, we get on a bike, right? We're pedaling. There's a time that we're gonna hit that that lactic acid threshold where we just go whoosh, and we just we literally you you physically can't pedal through it. You hit it, you have to decrease intensity. There's there's no way to get through it. He was at the point where he could just cycle, and he would as the rate he was producing it, he was just his body was getting rid of it, so he could just keep going and going and going. Coaching in addition to the drugs. Yeah, I was gonna say in addition to blood doping. <laughs> yeah, blood doping works really well. So. Yeah, but that actually was a natural occurrence in his body. He was yeah, ridding us that a lactic acid threshold was absurdly high. Yeah. Okay, what else? Let's let's uh, do about one more here. 
I got just one Ten more thing to, to add on top of that. When we look at just like energy system development for, for sports and stuff like that, I think it's really important when you are trying to figure out what the demands are. Watch the player, not necessarily the ball, right? So if you're looking at soccer or even like hockey or basketball, right? A lot of times it is a short acceleration, maybe a change of direction or two, and then it's a lot of very low intensity jogging or in, in the case of hockey, let's say, it might be a couple a couple of strides on, on, on skating where we're accelerating and then it's very, I'm just kind of coasting here. So if you look at the average shift time and you say, oh, he's on the ice for 45 seconds at a time, we need to do nothing but 45 second intervals on the bike to get ready for that. Well, chances are it is very much more like what you might see in football where it's short burst, brief intermittent period of, of relative low intensity, right? So it's not always just balls to the wall for that time period right so watch the player I think I think it's a Charlie Francis uh, quote watch the player don't watch the game and that can help you kind of with the you know, figuring out what you want to do from a from an energy system development standpoint and even just from a, like from a biology the way I watch football is completely different from the way most people watch football is I literally watch for shin angles I watch for decelerative steps how many if, if a receiver is running a, a comeback route how many steps is he taking to decelerate and then come back off the ball what are his shin angles in those decelerative patterns? When do they start to shift this way? What are his shoulders doing as he's decelerating? What is his, what is that defensive end center of mass coming off the ball? What does his shin angle look like? What is his ankle mobility? You know, you look at an offensive lineman, you can look at a lot of, one thing I look at a lot of offensive linemen as they play is I look at their ability to move at the hip in the hip capsule. A lot of guys who don't have internal rotation have a really hard time expressing their hips a lot of times. You know, I think, we have a tackle that had that issue a lot previously, and we're done a lot last year. We had a lot more success this year of, of just freeing up some of that range of motion inside their hips so you can actually express that force, not just be able to produce it. Um, so, yeah, I think you guys start to, you know, it's just like I took a cinematography class once in college, and I hated it because for the next six months, I couldn't even enjoy a movie because then you all of a sudden, you, like, you take this cinematography class and you learn about all these angles. The power angle and you know the the whatever I came I can't remember any of it now but that's why you know, I literally had to try my hardest to forget everything because I couldn't enjoy a movie so I'm like oh that was a terrible power angle <laughs> what was that and I, just, I was like I watched movies in a whole different light after that and I'm just like man and so I literally tried to because you know when I watch movies I don't want to be in analyzer mode I want to be in just a relaxed watch mode but in football people would probably go nuts if they had to watch it through my brain because that's all I'm doing the entire time is I'm I'm watching it at, you know, from angles and, and biomechanics and hip position and you know arm position and center of mass position. So you start to watch those things, you see things a lot different. You see things a, a lot, a lot different. What else? Covered a lot. Yeah. Does that does that help? Does that help kind of clear up a lot of things and just I guess solidify them for you guys? And, yeah. yeah. And that's the important thing is is if you guys have these experiences is. Getting a what, it really doesn't matter because it's not always transferable. What we do here doesn't mean it's going to be the best for the next job you have or internship you have. You have to understand why. And that's the best thing. If you guys leave here and you don't know why we do what we do, you haven't done a good job of asking questions. Not just a what is that, how do you do it. That's great because you want to be able to teach it. But you, if you don't know why, how can you fully believe in it? Whether you, whether you choose to take this entire program and say that's my new philosophy or you decide to take – Five percent of it, or fifty—I don't care—but I want you to know the whys, why we're doing what we're doing, and why we're coaching what we're coaching. You have to be a teacher. 
at least that, that, that's my opinion. I think the best strength coaches in America are teachers. They teach their athletes. It's not just this is what we're doing, but it's this is why we're doing it. So obviously if you're going to teach it, you better know why. And when a football player comes up to you and says, hey, why? What? Why, are, why do we have to put our back in that position? I want you guys to be able to explain it. So make sure as you guys are continuing to watch and evaluate, find out why. And the things you don't know why, ask one of us and bring those things up. Hey, why did we program this? And I noticed that you changed this to this on this there. You took that away. Why did you do that? Um, why do we coach? Why do you coach the, the you know, like, like um, straight leg, straight or, uh, or walking topo, right? Most people coach broke back here, which is fine because it's, it's a neural flossing thing. So it's a neural flossing thing in the hip to, to really bend the back and tuck the chin. That's one way to do it. For me, I don't like the way that we hinge here yet in the weight room. I don't, I don't think it's natural enough yet for us in that position to really understand. So I try to link as much stuff as I can. So do we get, do we lose the neural flossing aspect of this? Yes, but we still get a hell of a hamstring stretch and we can solidify that set back position that we talked about. We can start to coach things in multiple places. Just like you hear us talk about high chest in the weight room, and then we talk about that stick position, well, we changed the name of it to, a, instead of a loaded position, which I called my entire career, because we were having a hard time knowing the high chest position in here, really getting it down, we changed what I've always called the loaded position to now the high chest position. It doesn't matter. It's just either bar in your hand or hands back. And so you make those, those small things, but knowing